Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation. Beautiful little spring day in California. Sun's trying to peek out between those gray clouds from the beach. I do want to put out a disclaimer today. We will be talking about very sensitive material. So if something triggers you, please just note that if you need to turn off, I give you that warning now. Today, I have a guest who has quite the story and fits the exact name of this podcast. Trauma. At the age of 13, he survived a traumatic brain injury, suffered an automobile accident that killed the other two people he was with, along with an impossible relationship with his mother and father that left him neglected and physically abused and unable to heal from the accident, and it ultimately led him to gang life. Trial. Michael was tried as an adult for murder he committed when he was 15 years of age and received a 27-year prison sentence. Transformation. While in prison, Michael participated in many self-help rehabilitation programs, including the trauma circle that was used in the Step Inside the Circle film and part of the film we've talked about in the past, Wisdom of Trauma, with the Compassion Prison Project, which was with Fritzy Hortzman on episode 23. He also trains service dogs for military veterans, PTSD, and teaches veterans how to train dogs themselves. I want to welcome Michael Todd. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. I'm thrilled to talk about your story of resilience and self-love and compassion. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Juliet. Well, listen, I've done a little research on you and things that you've sent. So we're going to dive right in. It sounded like in 1993, you met a guy, you were introduced to a skinhead subculture that kind of lit a fire that violence was the way to get through your life and the way to be accepted. And you learned from your parents. Is that right? Like that's the way you were loved? Yes. So, I mean, my first memory is three years old, seeing my dad trying to kill my mom with a hammer. Mm. So I saw him at nine years old, try to shoot somebody for bringing somebody to his party that he didn't like. Mm. He was constantly in bar fights and, you know, he was a biker. So there were a lot of biker gang fights and stuff. So Violence was always the answer. When he was upset with his girlfriends, he would beat them. So I grew up seeing violence as the answer to everything. Mm -hmm. When, you know, I was fighting in kindergarten and all throughout school. So by the time I was in the accident in 1992, I was 12. And I came out of that with survivor's guilt and you know, feelings of worthlessness. I lost respect for the sanctity of life, my own and others included, you know. So at that point, I met my co-defendant who was 19, I was 13. And he said, oh, well, you like fighting and we're violent and we're going to go be in this race war and we're going to go kill everybody. And, you know, here's some meaning for your life. And that's what 
pulled me in that and the sense of belonging because I never felt I belonged my entire life. Yeah, that seems like that's kind of a common theme with gang mentality of a place to belong, family. And you were also, it sounded like you were encouraged and praised for violence. So that kind of built you into a place of like, that's how you received love. That's how you received attention. Is that right? Yeah. So the only time I really remember my dad praising me, you know, was when I was fighting. Mm -hmm. I came home from school and my friends told my dad, oh, he just got in a fight at school. And they were like, well, his answer was, well, did you win? You know, that was the only right. question. And when right. I had a problem with somebody and I told my dad, hey, I'm going to have to go fight this guy at school. Right. And I don't want you to beat me up for getting in trouble at school. And he said, well, look, as long as you win, you're good. Wow. So wow. that was the only caveat to it was you better win. So with your co-defendant, there was a murder involved um, that you were involved in. Yes. And, you know, I want to I want to go into the courtroom. So the 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 crime happened and now you're 15 years old. Yes. And what were your first feelings like standing in that courtroom at that age? Can you remember what those feelings were? For me, I didn't really have a comprehension of what was really happening. It was just a big joke and it was a game to me. You know, I mean, I was going, OK, whatever, you know. You got me, you know, I'd been told this entire time that if you got a, uh, you committed a crime before 18, you'd just go to YA and you'd come out and everything would be okay. So like, it was very unrealistic to be tried as an adult and standing there knowing that I would never get out of prison. Right. And that had to been a feeling of, of, well, cause I saw too, that you really detested authority. Like and yeah. there you are in front of a judge of all the highest authority, probably in handcuffs. I mean, how did you like, you know, caged at that point? Like, how did you handle hating authority so much and now being in the highest level of authority? How did you deal with that emotionally? Well, I just, you know, I continued to despise them. I wanted to make a spectacle of it. I was laughing and joking and looking at the cameras and, you know, making sure that they were focusing on me and, you know, who I was. And, mm -hmm. you know, who I was at the time was who I wanted to be was, you know, was a hooligan and a criminal. So mm -hmm. at that point, I didn't care. Because that was your identity, basically. Yes. That was yeah. right. So how, how many times I, have you appeared in court? Um, I had my own. My previous record was juvenile hall for 45 days and then life in prison. Mm -hmm. so one, one to the other. Yeah. So that's basically, yeah, didn't have a lot of other time in between there. So, so did, did you, did you fear the judge? Did you fear anybody in the room? No, I, well, no. that's not true. I mean, I didn't fear what they could do sentence wise. I feared the bailiffs a little bit because they were very abusive and mm. would, um, you know, uh, unfortunately the victim in my case had family who worked in the sheriff's department. So oh, wow. their friends uh, came to pay me visits on certain occasions. And uh, although they didn't really beat me up, they were pretty rough on, you know, a 15 year old kid. Right. And, um, you know, so right. I detested them. I detested the right. judge. Uh, I didn't care. And I figured, you know, this was where my life was headed. They told me when I joined the gang that, you're going to be dead by the time you're 25. So wow. if you're not dead, you're going to be in prison. Wow. So that was just your expectation? Yes. Wow. Okay. So 
So now you're standing there and you're given 25 years to life. Is that was just expected? Like, since you said that was, you're going to be in prison or you're going to die. I mean, so you're just like, okay, so what, that's where I was supposed to end up anyway. When the judge is telling you this. Well, I, I understood at that point that it was going to be a life sentence. When I committed the crime, I was like, ah, well, you know, I'll, I'll take the blame. I'll do all that because I'm a juvenile and they'll let me go. Um, Mm. and then I was tried as an adult. They had just Mm. passed the law saying that they could try, you know, juveniles as an adult. And I was like, huh, well, you know, the, the one thing about it was that I never denied what I did. Mm -hmm. Right. I took, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I took the, the, um, responsibility for it. And I said, yeah, I did that, but I didn't really care or comprehend what that meant. Right, right, right. Well, it's a lack of that self-love, which we're going to talk about here in a little while, but, um, so, okay. So we're going to jump 25 years ahead. And, um, so I've, I've never really been with a client that's gone through a parole hearing. So I'd, I'd kind of like to see how you walked yourself through that. So now you're 25 years in, or is that the first time your parole came up? So I went to uh, a parole hearing in April of 2017 mm-hmm. and I was denied for five years. Right. How did that feel? And, uh, it was, it was to be expected. Um, and for me, it actually felt like a victory because, uh, due to Marcy's law, uh, the expectation is that you'll get a 15 year denial. And then unless it, you, you're not that bad, and it's a 10 year denial unless, you know, so it goes all the way from 15 down to three. Mm. So because of the stuff that I had done in prison and my gang ties and that I expected a 15 year denial. Mm. So when I got a five year denial, I kind of felt like it was a victory, you know? Right. So, so that's, uh, what'd you say? Marcy's law. Was that, um, is that yes. the, different tiers of, of time. And yeah. is that all based on behavior or is it based on the crime or what is that based on? So that's just based on the law that they passed as a, like a victim's rights type of thing that mm. because you were harmed by this person, the expectation is this person doing a life sentence does not come home. So you could, you have to do your 25 years and then you get a 15 year denial, then a 10 year denial, then a seven, then a five, then a three, and then you're mm. dead before you come home. Mm. And but, you got a five, five years. So yes. you almost felt like in that victory that you're like, okay. So what was it like, like literally in, is it like a point of parole hearing? Is it, you're sitting in front of a parole board? Is it, you have your lawyer or what does it look like? Um, so you actually go between uh, or before one commissioner and one deputy commissioner. So they do a panel Mm -hmm. and then they go over your case and they, they go through all the different steps, your, your causative factors, your childhood, um, you know, contributing factors, stuff like being a gang member and an alcoholic or a drug addict. And then they go into, um, your time in prison, your disciplinary history in prison, your, um, transformation in prison and then your parole plans Mm. so it's kind of a those areas right there you have to be able to talk about that connect the dots and show the link between those causative factors which are you know the adverse childhood experiences that compassion prison project teaches about Mm -hmm. and go from how did i get from this happened to me 
and I became this person. So I did this. And then how did I address this? And now how am I no longer a threat to society? Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I, um, so this was pre, uh, stepping in the circle, correct? The this first time I, the first, first time, time I went to parole. parole. Yeah. Yes. This was pre that. So you'd not had really any, had you had any treatment or any therapy or any support for the, before that first parole hearing? We had just started, um, doing like peer to peer parole preparation groups. And I had got started with that, but it was in the infancy. People didn't mm -hmm. really do that yet. Mm -hmm. When people were making their parole packets, everyone's like, what's a parole packet? Right. Why do you need that? Right. Like right. they don't, they don't let people go home. Why do, why do we care? Right. Why, you know, right. and then, and then we, we started getting this idea because our C files, a central file is the record that CDCR keeps on us. And all they want to put in there is the bad things. So this was mm -hmm. our way to be able to present to the board some good things to highlight the positive or explain the negative. Gotcha. So there's, yeah, so it's not just, here's the crime, here's the time. It's what's what's going on around it, which is what I loved about, you know, talking to Fritzi. It was just so, how she sees, you know, prisons as, you know, trauma centers was just incredible. But the, the process of going through that. So I, you know, I didn't realize this. Um, that nationwide, approximately 96% of parolees successfully complete parole. Did you know that was that high? I didn't know that. Yeah, that was a statistic I found the other day. And I thought, you know, that there's obviously something very positive about the process. Um, that's a very high number. But I, I also saw you, you sent me some materials in, in the parole. You sent me your parole packet, which I was, you know, really into because I've never seen one that, that extensive and that complete. And, um, you know, it was the the plan that like the first 24 hours up to five years. So, so was that something when you put your parole packet together, do you do that with someone? Do you do this on your own or how, how does that process work? Um, so I had a friend that helped me prepare to answer the questions, um, not giving uh, predetermined answers, mm -hmm. but to understand what the questions are. Because when the parole board asks you, why did you commit this crime? They're not asking you for the superficial answer of, you know, this guy stole from me. Right. They want you to go back and go, this happened to me as a child. And because of this, money was so important to me that this happened, um, you know, using not, not my case, but as just as an example. Right. Um, right. So they want you to connect the dots. So in yeah. the plans, I, the same friend helped me as you know, what are you going to do? What are you looking at? And I had been going to classes and preparing anyhow. So a lot of that was just, this is what I planned to do when I got out. And then we just kind of mm -hmm. put it all together. So you'd had um, a five-year plan basically, right? So yeah. since your next parole was going to come up in five years. So, you know, it was interesting when I looked in the plan, it included things like coping tools, conflict resolution, the ability to recognize warning signs, getting ahead of the relapse. I was pretty impressed the fact that how detailed and then, you know, detailed this really was that even everyday coping tools that they gave you, which I is right up my alley. I think we all should be using is the daily coping tools of meditation, walking, journaling, music, volunteering, reading books, engaging your support network. I mean, I, I, it was such a great list that I thought, wow, we all need this list. It shouldn't just be someone coming out of, you know, 
trying to to rehabilitate. But um, when you actually started to put this together, then do you actually just present it in your next parole hearing, or is it something that that goes ahead of time? So you present it before you go to the board. Um, you have to send it through. Uh, the counselors through the records, you mail it to, to uh, uh, BPH, which is the board of parole hearings. Um, you also can take a copy with you. You give one to your attorney. So there's many copies floating around and you just hope that one of them makes it to them. Oh, okay. So, wow. So it's not like a really direct sit and here's my copy and it's, you know, so you're hoping it gets there. So it's a process in that way. So, so when you finally got to that five-year parole hearing, in between, well, let me go back up a little bit. So in between this five-year period, what changed in your being to work so hard at this to really, was this the Compassion Prison Project or what, what changed in you to, to, to walk away from the, um, I'll just say it, no self-love, you know, versus loving yourself and knowing you are, you can be loved and violence is not the way. What, where did that change? I mean, it was a combination of things. I, mean, I had been living basically in a state of war and fight or flight for my entire life, but mm-hmm. in prison for the, the, the previous 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, while I was in prison, um, over a number of incidents, I was stabbed like 40 times. I was sliced like 15 times. I had my face broken. I was jumped. I'm, you know, I was living in a way that I knew if the door opened, the guy next to me was going to come out with a knife and try to get me. So we, you know, we were constantly in that type of mindset. Mm -hmm. And I just reached a point where I was tired. I didn't want to hurt anybody anymore. I didn't want to be hurt anymore. I just wanted to live my life. And by starting to do the self-help groups and look and see that there was something else out there uh, that I could improve myself, that Hmm. that really helped. And something that really helps is victim impact. You know, when you're in a victim impact class and you see some someone come in who talks about what had happened to them. And then like you see some 20 something year old girl who something happened to her and you see her in there crying and, and, and being vulnerable and telling you about like it really makes you feel um, bad about yourself, about the lifestyle you're living. When you look and go, you know, I did that to somebody else. Mm-hmm. I did that to somebody's family. You know, I took somebody's whole life from there. Right. Um, so you start getting in touch with that, you know, the the conscience, the the inner voice, because you're taught in prison to bury that. Mm. You know, you well, can't. How? How are you taught to bury that? And just because of the just because of the environment? Yes, because you you can't show weakness. You can't show um, affection for other people uh, because this guy who you are really good friends with, if the circumstances change, you might have to try to kill this guy. Oh, wow. In prison. Yes. Yeah. So that's the pressure that's coming along with it inside the prison. Right. And how you have to get through that. So it's, so once that's, and this is what the parole board is always looking at, right? This is what they're looking at when they say your behavior and where things go. So you got to a point where you just basically surrendered and said, look, I'm, I want to live my life. I'm done with the side of it. Is that what happened? So, yeah. And that was part of it. And there were, 
there were many factors coming in, you know, uh, family, uh, an ex-girlfriend who came back and was like, look how much time you've put into this gang and all this, what are you getting out of it? And, you know, so I started thinking about it, but one of the things that really was telling for me was that I'm on the yard with these people who are supposed to be my friends, my comrades, and, you know, they're supposed to, you know, care about me. And they want me to stay on the yard and carry a knife and go out here and do all this stuff. They want me to quit my classes. They're like, come hang out with us. I'm like, but I'm trying to go home. Right. And they basically want me to stay in prison forever. Right. And I'm in these groups and all these people who I had been taught my entire life were my enemies are in there trying to help me go home. Right. And there there was a disconnect there that I Mm. couldn't reconcile. Right. Right. So did you actually have like um, anybody outside of like another prisoner that you could actually talk to and reach out to? Like, you know, like I said, like there's you've got the parole board, you've got I mean, do you have anybody that you can actually reach out to that helps you through this process? The courts, the there's uh, different organizations that that can help you. Usually what you do is you get a class in prison. And it's a bunch of guys who thought they knew what they were doing, but these are the guys who are still being denied for board and are for parole. And they're telling you to do stuff which isn't necessarily correct. Like yeah. when when they're asking questions, they tell you answer with the superficial. Tell them, well, I was a gang member and this is why I did that. Well, that's going to get you a denial. So, right. <laughs> right? Um, right. so we're, we had, I was fortunate because I found someone who really understood what the board was asking. And he started teaching me to look deeper because, you know, I've buried all this, you know, oh, and yeah. this is the, I, now I have to talk to somebody about my crime and actually be vulnerable in it, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. the, the first yourself. Yeah. And, and the first time I had cried in prison and cried in about 30 years was talking about my crime to this other man in prison, you know? Yeah. That's, uh, that, that's why I look at, you know, like the system itself and how, you know, how is it helping? How is it, you know, that's why, you know, with compassion prison project is such an interesting, you know, concept and a beautiful and amazing concept to go back to that root and that seed, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, so, you know, on, on your transformation stage, you know, um, it looks like um, one of, I guess one of the main questions before I actually move on to that, do you seem to get a lot of pushback or negative reaction from your past history, like today, like when you just meet people or do you, do you expose that? Because it's, it's a very, very admirable, powerful thing to admit something so deeply wrong. Uh, most people don't recognize it. You know, I kind of look like a geek. And I, I embrace that. So I just kind of wander around. I mean, I have all the tattoos and everything. So people see it, but nobody really pays attention to what my tattoos are, what they may represent. Um, but I mean, I have had some, you know, I mean, I had a girlfriend when I got out who was Latina and she couldn't get over the tattoos that I have, mm-hmm. you know, the, my crime, all that, you know, so uh, we ended up, breaking up she just couldn't deal with it and she was so worried about what other people would think about her that she Mm -hmm. allowed them to um kind of push me away but i mean 
that was to be expected. When I came out, I, I feared that nobody would accept me. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be shunned forever. And I was fortunate there was a community that would accept me and help me. Yeah, that was similar. I don't know if um, you knew that Jason Van Tantoff, who was um, with the Oath Keepers and then testified against the Oath Keepers on January 6th, mm-hmm. that was his exact feeling was that he was like he was afraid that once he left, and people found out they wouldn't accept him. And so it's this acceptance, right? This is something that comes along with that. But how, when, how did you find the courage? Like wh- where in yourself did you find the courage to know once you got out, this is a life you can live, you can move on, still love yourself. Where, where'd you find that courage? Well, as I said, um, I was started going to the classes and I was still on the fence and I was still going, yeah, I'm a skinhead. I'm, I'm a Nazi. I'm doing this, but I'm out here on the yard hanging out with these other guys and I'm going into class and I'm hugging people from different races. And it's, we started humanizing each other. Hmm. We stopped using nicknames. We started calling each other by our first names or by Mr. And their last name. And that started a shift. Hmm. And unfortunately, before I left there, um, you know, that's, I was ambushed and people tried to murder me. Mm. And when I left, I was able to go to a progressive programming facility in Lancaster. And I specifically asked for that place because they had a dog program there. Mm. And the dogs are really what saved me and changed my life. So, but, so yeah, I was going to bring that up actually that you, uh, you are, so you're training dogs, right? And mm-hmm. for PTSD, um, for veterans, teaching veterans how to do that. So that's, you learned that when you went to Lancaster? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Lancaster was really good for me um, because I participated in Step Inside the Circle there. I was training dogs. So I met the guy who really helped me understand causative factors, contributing factors, character defects, warped belief systems, mm-hmm. all that stuff that now I'm using uh, with Compassion Prison Project where I'm going and talking to people and telling them about this and teaching them how to get through the parole process. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned all of that there. Right. So so you're actually, um, so you're more on the parole end versus the court front end. Is that right? Yes. Um, I'm I'm trying to go more into a preventative and restorative justice angle. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to start with the kids and start addressing trauma before they go to prison. Um, but we also need to work in the juvenile halls. We need to work in the foster system. We need to help kids that are going through the, uh, you know, uh, big brother, uh, Mm -hmm. the boys and girls clubs. And then we have to help people who are in jail who are pre-trial, who are in prison. And then there's different stages of when you're in prison. You have going into prison, you're still that same person. And then you have the time where you start um, transforming to the time where you are transformed and rehabilitated and ready Mm -hmm. to return back to society. But after that, what happens after that? You have to help somebody when they come home and then, okay, so they get a little bit of help in the transition home. They're on parole. They're, now they're off parole. What do you do for the last 20, 30 years of their life? Right. We can't ignore their trauma after they come home. Trauma doesn't go away. You're constantly right. working on it. Yeah. I've had childhood trauma myself. And it's everybody says, when are you going to get over it? 
And I'm like, well, yeah, when do you get over that big scar on your arm that, you know, you almost cut your arm off? It's like, it's always going to be there in that sense. And it's that preventative working at it way to look at, you know, how you can forward your life and still live a happy life in that sense. So it sounded like you do facilitate classes and teach people, you know, young people. So is that something that's through the Compassion Prison Project or is that something you do on your own? I began when I first got out working with other organizations, but everything I'm doing now is with Compassion Prison Project. And I want to, before we move on, I definitely want to point out that being in Step Inside the Circle, really meeting Fritzy, joining with the Compassion Prison Project there, becoming a Compassion Ambassador and learning about ACEs and mm-hmm you know, finding the courage right there to step inside, be filmed, to talk about right. the trauma that happened to me and, you know, the trauma, which bonds us to all those other people there in prison, mm-hmm. no matter their race or their gang or ethnicity mm-hmm. or anything. And that really, that started me on this path before I got to work with this other guy. Mm. I didn't understand everything the first time Mm -hmm. I went through it. I did it. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm here. I'm taking these steps forward. But then it started me thinking. And then when I was able to work with someone else who was telling me more about it, I was like, that's what Fritzy was talking about. Mm -hmm. That's what I need to understand. That's what people need to know. So I've really been focusing on that trauma angle since then. And that's what's made me the person I am today. Wow, that's quite admirable. I must tell you, Michael, it's just really the business I've been in has been in persuasion for years. And I've always, always believed you can never persuade someone unless they have done or been in the same situation you've been in and they can relate. And that's to me why, you know, the prison system sometimes a lot of people can relate to what each other's done, might not like it, might not be a very, obviously not a healthy place to be, but the same time you bond by a gang, right? You have things you can relate to and that persuades somebody to jump into that space. And, you know, what do you do for yourself now? Like, what do you do to like, keep yourself, you know, in check and really where just to keep yourself, you know, mentally and emotionally happy? Well, I work with dogs. <laughs> yeah, That's always a good one. <laughs> that's the primary thing that keeps me sane, right? I get to be with dogs. I go to the gym. I go to the beach. I go hiking. I take the time to not only appreciate and enjoy life, but to live in a state of discovery, mm-hmm. right? I'm constantly rediscovering the world. Right, right. You know, every day I go out there, I look at nature and I go, wow, you know, this is happening here. I, you know, but through Compassion Prison Project, we do a lot of different modalities for trauma healing, mm-hmm. such as tapping, meditation, havening. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of that with me as well, but I have a support network. I have people that I can turn to, that I can talk to, that are there for me and encourage me. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things that as a child I was lacking. Right. Had I had that as a child, I, maybe I wouldn't have become a gang member or a criminal. You right. know, maybe I would have never hurt anybody. Right. So it's getting to those kids that make them realize we're all loved and we're all cared for and in the security. And Well, Michael, we're going to wrap up here, but I am so grateful today that we've talked. It's, you know, like I said, very admirable for your ability to heal, to forgive yourself, have find that self-love and get through the system. I'm honored to talk to someone who's 
got such a big heart and going to pass on such positive things in the world after hitting such lows. So I really want to thank you for being here with me today. Thank you, Julia. I really appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, that's really great. So everyone, I want to thank you for listening. What an amazing conversation today. And just remember, go out, have some compassion and spread the love. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find your books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.